Hi, this is Audrey, the engineer for the Edible Alpha podcast, here with just a quick note before we begin. Since COVID, we have been doing these recordings online in isolated locations, and sometimes that can present some internet connection issues for our guests. So at about 15 minutes or so in, you'll hear us switch from being connected online to being connected via a phone call instead. We apologize for the abrupt change, but I wanted to let you know that that is how the podcast was recorded, and there's nothing wrong with your internet connection or your phone or your stereo, however you're listening to us today. Here's Tara with today's episode. Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So Leslie and Wes, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, why don't we start by having you introduce yourselves, your yourselves, and what you do on your farm? Well, uh, I'm Leslie Cooper Band. I am the co-owner with my husband Wes Gerald of Prairie Fruits Farm and Creamery. We have been a licensed farmstead, goat dairy, and creamery since 2005. We're in central Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, uh, which I like to call the dairy desert. Um, we are one of two <laughs> licensed dairies in our entire county, and the other one is the University of Illinois dairy. Uh, so that tells you um, how much of a dairy culture we have here in central Illinois. Uh, but we have been making farmstead cheeses, artisan-style goat cheeses, mostly French-inspired since we opened our doors in 2005 and um, we added goat milk gelato in 2011 uh, we we are a pretty small operation we started milking 25 goats that first year and we're currently milking a little over 100 goats we're, we're pasture based we've been certified animal welfare approved since 2010 so we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary as certified AWA, which is a very high welfare, pasture-based uh, certification program. And we mostly sell our products uh, retail here in our, in our area through farmer's markets and a farm store and, and do quite a bit of wholesale business in Chicago. Oh, <clears throat> uh, this awesome. is Wes. Um, yeah, Wes. I don't have much to add to that. <laughs> well, the agri-tourism. Uh, yes, and we did uh, start fairly early, finding people love to come out here and see the goats especially. So we started agritourism. We started doing dinners on the farm, local food dinners, in 2008. And uh, we were inspired by Carlo Petrini, who founded the Slow Food Movement. Uh, who had a potluck here with a bunch of other local farmers we invited and uh, we sit at long tables people interact a lot they all hear about where their food came from and how it was produced um, it's been great but this year because we were looking at expanding we decided not to do that and that was uh, uh, good timing it turned out so we didn't uh, have pre-sold dinners we'd have to cancel but uh, we're just now opening up a little bit on Sunday afternoons for people to come out uh, with social distancing, masks, other preventions, and uh, at least being able to look at the goats and to uh, breathe some country air for a little while. 
uh, and have our gelato. Yeah, so uh, goat milk yeah. gelato sounds awesome. We'll have to get you some soon. Yeah, some, we, somehow. We also make... I get to come and visit your place <laughs> is how we're going to do that in I, some way yeah. or shape yeah, or form, yeah. right? How far are you from yeah. Chicago? Yeah, we, two hours south. Okay. Straight south. So it's huh. about, it's a, we drove back and forth to Madison for one year after we Whoa. moved here. Leslie was still at the university there after I'd taken the position here. So we know the route pretty well. I it's bet. about four hours yeah. door to door. Yeah. Yeah. So you were inspired, from what I understand, um, uh, to do this because when you were in Madison, um, you <laughs> fell in love with one of our um, farm stage goat cheese makers. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, her name is Ann Topham. Uh, she's retired now. But she, uh, she was one of the pioneers of French-style goat cheeses in the United States back in the early 1980s. Um, and she made beautiful cheeses with very few goats. Phantome Farm. Phantome Farm was the name of her yeah, farm. Yeah, and she, I think she only sold at the farmer's market, right? Right, yep. Yeah. yep. The, the restaurants would come to her. Yeah. Um, um, Odessa Piper from L'Etoile would famously walk around with her little wagon uh, <laughs> around the, the Dane County Farmer's Market, and um, she bought from Ann Topham on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just remember that cheese being so delicious, and it didn't have any of that sort of, so I delicious. don't know, goaty acidicness to it. It was so creamy. Right, yeah. yep. No. Yeah. No, her yeah. milk was great. Yeah. We have tried to emulate her. Um, and um, a lot of people that have had her cheese definitely see the similarity. So she, you were inspired by her. Then you moved to central Illinois where there was no dairy. It must have been like quite an adventure to get a creamery set up and running where you are. <laughs> well, one of the, uh, obviously we have... Uh, regulators whose job is to keep the milk healthy and everything else so because we're farmstead um, we have a milk house that uh, gets the milk receives the milk from the milking parlor and that supplies the milk to the creamery and uh, they're very close together right Um, and the um, folks from the department of public health were concerned about uh, uh, cleanliness which we've never had as a problem but uh, just having these two things in close proximity were uh, challenging for them to work through. But 15 years later, they're good friends and, and consultants on uh, what we need to do and how we need to do it. So do, are there more, just more farmstead cheese in the state now than there used to be? Like, are they have, they have more experience working uh, there's with farmstead? Like, not, not that many. Uh-huh. No, not a whole lot more. I mean, I think there's four, maybe five total. Cow. In, uh, in the yeah, and mostly cow. Yeah, right. there, well, no. there's uh, uh, there's uh, there's two other goat, yeah. uh, Greta's goats and um, Green Meadows. So, yeah, uh, there are not that many, and it's um, I think it's much more of a people perceive that the barrier to entry is pretty high, and it is in terms of infrastructure costs mm-hmm. uh, and just just an overall. You know, it's not the same kind of culture of dairy like it is in Wisconsin. Sure. Um, and there definitely is a perception that it, there's a high threshold for entry. Right. 
Well, you know, I, I would tell people about Tara's way that I literally could not have had that business in another state because you needed to have <laughs> a, so much infrastructure in order to have that whey protein business because we needed cheese plants that were generating organic whey and goat whey. They had to be close to the, you know, to the facility because, as you know, whey is almost all water. Um, so you don't want to transport right. it a long way. Um, and then you had to have haulers, and I needed a place to take the permeate. And, you know, so without all that infrastructure, that way business would have to do all that itself, and it could never work financially. So, yeah, it's, it is hard when you're an outpost like you are because you kind of have to do everything. Yeah, there were no there were no folks that do the equipment side of things. We brought in expertise from Wisconsin uh, mm -hmm. because we couldn't find anyone in in the state that could initially. initially that could even build a parlor and know what equipment to source from. And yeah, we were really really on our own in terms right. of. Um, of just trades, tradespeople, just finding folks who even understood the the concrete work that needed to be done, or the air quality work that needed to be done. Things that you, uh, you know, in Wisconsin, it's there's just this familiarity with those systems, and there's people out there that know how to build for those kind of conditions and requirements. And here, that does not, and it still is really challenging to find people that that get what your needs are right, right and i'd also say there are a few that do uh that do cows but goats totally different um, right uh, i mean inexperienced there's overlap obviously but uh there are significant differences what i love about goats is um being in a milking parlor with goats you know and while they're milking they have these incredibly expressive <laughs> faces that Cows, I guess, you know, <clears throat> yes, once you get do. to know cows, you could see expressions like that in them too, but not to the degree you do with goats, I don't think. They're sort of No, um, uh, there's nothing like it. The charismatic character of the goats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they are entertaining, and they're, um, they're occasionally mischievous, but not malicious. Yeah. That's one thing we try to keep in mind. Uh-huh. Uh, if they try to jump out or they jigger the gate latch loose or something like that. Uh, they're just being curious and active. Yeah. But there's all the same ones have, uh, the same ones who are, who are looking for trouble, uh, find their way to make trouble. And right. we're pretty sure it's genetic actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, we can see the mothers, mothers and daughters <laughs> having similar pro propensities for, uh, getting into trouble. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So your goats, yeah. when you say your goats are on pasture, let's talk about what that looks like. Uh, well, we have uh, we have about 15 acres currently that is uh, was most of it was planted um, in like a grass legume forb mixture. And then um, we have an area that was uh, we restored as prairie. And um, that has a lot of really interesting prairie plant, native prairie plants in it. Um, uh, but then towards the bottom, which is adjacent to a creek, uh, we have a lot of woody browse. Um, so invasive species like honeysuckle, but then 
honey locust, and then cottonwoods that kind of came in as as we let the we stopped burning the prairie after a few years, and the cottonwoods started to kind of creep up into the wetter areas of the prairie. Uh, mm-hmm. So so they get to go into that browse area most most often on a daily basis. Uh, we we're currently escorting them down there because there's no fencing. Um, and but they do have open access to their grass legume forb pasture uh, all the time right and because um goats um are are naturally browsers not grazers right right yeah that the um uh what we've noticed of course uh, if you don't let them have access to uh woody species you don't really know this but uh, since we were Putting them down there in the prairie and in the riparian zone along the stream, we uh, observed how selective they are, how curious they are, um, how much they want to pick what they think is right, (laughs) either in taste or for nutrition or both. And uh, by giving them a buffet of choices, um, as we are in much of the farm now, it's giving them a lot better uh, opportunity to sniff away at what they're seeing and decide which ones are just right for eating, which they do continuously when they're out there. Isn't that funny? Um, so what do they like so, to eat? Well, uh, I've been taking them down to the uh, poplars, among other things. They love honeysuckle. They love the uh, thorny um, honey locust. It's a legume. It could have nutrition comparable to alfalfa. Hmm. So, um, But it's thorny and woody but uh, we'll cut down some trees or branches and just let them uh, swarm into it eat away Uh, but last winter i cut some of the sapling poplars in about two-thirds down and laid them over Mm -hmm. and uh, was hoping they'd sprout and they have set up a bunch of um, uh, vertical uh, branches that go straight up in the air and produce these large cabbage-like leaves on them and they go crazy on that. So uh, um, we we know they like that. We know when they get out, they'll eat uh, most things. Not everything, but most things. Um, they love silver maples, um, willows of all types. So um, uh, we decided to do that, do some of this on purpose, <laughs> rather yeah. than just take what was out there. So, um, with, so they um, can clear brush then. Well, uh, goats are naturally browsers, and um, in fact, we got a call a year ago from uh, Wisconsin. Um, some a sort of organic certifier was wondering why, uh, if goats could, uh, how well they dealt with pasture, and uh, it was one of their um, clients said they really don't like pasture. Well, we think they do like pasture, but they really like browse and pasture so um we there's a lot of misconceptions i think about what can and can't happen but nobody in the midwest wants to plant trees because they spent a hundred years trying to get rid of trees from most of their fields (laughs) so (laughs) goes against the grain um but leslie and i both had experience uh planting trees that uh livestock eat um and studying their ecology and production so uh we thought we would should give it a try uh we've observed them eating species uh, they love the poplars when they're especially when they're younger and fresher um 
but uh, and they like any legu- almost any leguminous tree or plant. Um, so, uh, but then uh, when I decided to see what else they might like, um, we I decided to look at what deer like because mm. deer are also browsers and they are all over the place. And people have done, I think, more research with what deer eat than with what goats eat. That's <laughs> but, funny. Um, because the landscapers all want to know what they don't eat, right. and the uh, hunters all want to know what they do eat. So between the two, there's quite a bit of data on what deer like to browse on. So uh, some of that uh, we've used for guidance in, in our plantings. Um, so things like uh, willow and black locust, um, the poplar, of course, red osier dogwood, is uh, one big one. Um, we have a lot of silver maple sprouts here that uh, we feed the goats um, and mulberries. They really like mulberries. So um, those are uh, uh, six species that we planted in the new planting and uh, will control their access to that so that they can get well-established and we can uh, manage them in such a way to produce um, a lot of growth. That's amazing. So, so how many acres are you planting for them? Almost, uh, it's, uh, there'll be uh, rotational grazing paddocks that'll either be the herbaceous or the woody or gated so we can put them on both at the same time. And it's a total of almost 20 acres that will be wow. when we finish with that, uh, with about um, a dozen, well, six, 16 paddocks. Okay. That they'll be able to, we'll be able to control access to and and monitor their uh, consumption, what they're eating, and when they're eating it. So, are you going to use um, movable electric fence so you can, yeah, you we'll, know, the paddocks are flexible. Yeah, we'll use some uh, some fixed fence, mostly around the borders, but then right. uh, for the dividers, we'll be using movable. Uh, that nice that we have access to this uh, easily movable um, fencing now with the yeah. electric fence. So we can be flexible in how we uh, uh, put the paddocks together. Yeah, so, yeah you know, it's funny. Fun. I think people think with technology and agriculture and other things too, but in agriculture that it has to be very complicated to have a big impact you know but as a technology movable electric fence has has oh. made so many things possible in agriculture no it's a breakthrough because uh before you had that the, I, uh, I built a lot of fence when i was a kid and uh yeah and you'd almost always when you got done building it you'd wish it was a little different <laughs> or somewhere else right. or uh it was actually gone so you could manipulate it better so uh being able to quickly string it and take it back up is a huge, huge breakthrough for uh, land management with animals. Yeah. With the movable electric fence, are there um, solar panels that can power those these days? Uh, yeah, no, not a problem at all. There's, uh, you can do solar panels. Uh, you can buy the chargers that are uh, uh, integrated with solar panels, or you can obviously put a battery out there that's uh, charged by solar panels and run yeah. it off the battery. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got to be really hot, though. Oh, yeah, okay. The, the they, goats, need, they need the to respect the, the, the shock. 
Right, right. Yeah. Right, especially that, goats, I would think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, the, the rule is if they get shocked in front of their eyes, they'll go backwards. But if they get shocked anywhere else, they go forward. Oh. And if the fence, if the fence is, you know, three strands or four strands, they might just walk right through it, and, uh, right. even if it's hot. So uh, you want them to respect it right away and, uh, and make sure it stays hot. Um, mm-hmm. But again, if you can move the fence, you can mow the lines out and keep them pretty clean. Um, right. And it can right. work pretty well. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Because goats, I mean, I think people have seen this, but they climb right there. They're incredibly <laughs> athletic animals. <laughs> Yeah. No, they, they're uh, ballet dancers in a lot of ways. So uh, <laughs> they um, uh, they can climb and uh, they like to climb. They yeah. really enjoy it. And jumping, of course, too, and they want to need to jump. Um, mm-hmm. So you but have they, to design also, systems that accommodate that. They suffer from the grass is always greener syndrome, where right. despite the fact that they're surrounded by amazing stuff to eat, they want to go first see what's on the other side of the fence. Right. Yeah. When you let them into a paddock, they don't start mowing the grass like cows often do. They run to the edges to see what's outside the fence. Yeah. And, uh, Isn't that funny? I had a dog that was like that. He was, you yeah. know, you'd go to the dog park and every other dog is playing with every other dog. My dog was running the periphery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it must be a herding dog. We're trying to find out yeah, what the boundaries are. So, yeah. yeah, no, that's the way goats yeah. are. Yeah. So, okay. So you are now planting this this twenty acres that is going to be kind of goat paradise. It sounds like. Other well, than we're the hoping, fences. Yeah. Well, we're hoping that it's goat paradise and that they respect the fences. Um, and uh, it turns out we're hoping it'll be a biodiversity paradise, too. Nice. Um, we're getting uh, good support from Pheasants Forever, who uh, oh, have nice. a, yeah. a no-till drill that they very kindly loan to farmers to plant uh, something besides corn and soybeans, usually. So uh-huh. uh, they've been good, and I think the way our um, woody... Uh, paddocks are lining up. They're looking a little like fence rows that mm. uh, Aldo Leopold would enjoy and appreciate. Right. So um, lots of uh, wildlife can take refuge and feed on some of the products from these uh, year-round. And uh, we'll be trying to track the biodiversity changes, too, over time. Nice. And is that your academic background, too? or? Well, we're both uh, soil scientists, so we'll okay. be monitoring soil changes and uh, some special attention to carbon to see if we can detect storage over five or ten years. Um, and uh, But also fertility, and then uh, we have lots of friends on campus who deal, and other campuses who deal with... Uh, insects and mammals and birds and uh we'll be doing what we can to try to um look at how those evolve over time as it's converted from a classic conventional soil or corn and beans Mm -hmm. soybeans uh operation to uh uh diverse landscape that goats in particular will love and appreciate a lot of and produce a lot of milk on 
but also can host a bunch of uh, additional uh, animals. So do you, we, we did should you guys emphasize. Know? Go ahead. Well, it, this was in uh, annual cash grain agriculture for decades. Okay. Uh, so, so the, this this ground um, has, you know, had very little diversity prior to us putting in the pasture and and the silvo pasture specifically. So it's going to be really interesting to see. And that that's what our home farm was the same. Uh, it was all had all been in cash grain agriculture for pretty close to a hundred years. Wow. So did you, when you guys were in Wisconsin, did you know Dick Cates? Oh yeah. Yeah. Doesn't everybody know Dick Cates? I think everybody (laughs) does. Well, anybody who grazes, right? Because he was so influential. Yeah. Yeah. His farm is beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm just thinking of his farm because um, he used to have, people at the university would go out there and do research plots. And I got, yeah. I got to imagine that that could be something that could go on in your farm too. No, we're Hopefully, very actively yeah. looking for those uh, opportunities. And we have, like I said, we know lots of expertise around the Midwest who should, uh, could be interested in, in tracking that. Right. So we'd hope to develop that in parallel with the uh, business side of the farm yeah well and you know the thing about cheese is that is especially kind of soft i would imagine like soft chef style goat cheese its flavor is really impacted by what the goats eat very much so yeah so this you can taste this the seasonality of of the milk in the in the cheeses and right now when they're mostly on a fresh fresh forage diet, the milk behaves differently, the flavor profiles in the cheeses are, are distinct in the summer. Uh, and, and then as, as we go into fall and they're eating, they're still eating stuff out there, but they're eating um, different things. And they're also, they love to eat the leaves, the dried leaves when they fall off the trees. They just oh, go really? crazy for those. Yeah, I don't huh. know what that's about, but they eat them like potato chips amazing yeah yeah and i think uh, they're like little vacuum cleaners one one reason we wanted the silver maple because it's related to sugar maple pretty closely and uh i've eaten the leaves and (laughs) or tasted Uh them i should say and uh they can be pretty sweet and i think they might leave some sugar when they when they dry up and fall off in the fall no wonder (laughs) they like it yeah that's so crazy. I never, yeah. So anyway, your cheeses are going to be impacted by this um, this system of feeding the goats, and it, that'll be in and of itself really interesting too. Yeah, it would. It would be, and we. It'd be if if we had the time and resources. It would be really cool to actually try to dig deeper and understand the biochemistry in the milk and how that's affecting the flavor. Right. Right. I mean, there's a, um, oh God, I can't remember. So Sid Cook here, um, Carvelli mm-hmm. cheese in Wisconsin. There's a, I can't remember what he calls it. There's a, there's a cheese that's just a cheddar style cheese, but he only makes it in the spring with spring mm-hmm. milk specific yeah. recipe. And his, it, this went way back to his dad. Um, uh, oh, wow. and yeah. 
just because the you know the the qualities of the milk when the when they're on pasture and it's fresh is so different. Yeah, that's a very it's a very European way of thinking about milk and cheese and yeah. understanding the relationship between season and diet and flavor profiles and uplands um it is the same way like they right. they they make their pleasant ridge reserve um it's only certain times of the year and then they stop making it right right and are you do you milk seasonally do you imagine seasonal milking or do you milk all year round we're we're seasonal currently so mm-hmm. it's well it's, it's, good. Goats, goats are naturally seasonal breeders, just like deer, again. Right. And so it's a little trickier and harder to get them to breed out of season. Uh, the, so nor, naturally, they'll they, uh, uh, kid in spring and get bred in the fall and go dry during the winter. But uh, we have found some that come into heat early and some late, and we can, uh, we're thinking about spreading it out a little bit. So that we right, can get to try to around production. Yeah. It's hard though, and, and you know, in some ways, like Uplands was um uh, Mike Gingrich was so smart in how he developed that business because they he had sales all year round, but he wasn't making cheese yeah. all year round. <laughs> right, right. No, yeah. that's the uh, joy of uh, aged cheeses. Yeah. Yeah. That's- Right. Yeah, well, that's part of the reason why, well, so we could have cheese to eat all year round, right? That's part of the reason we have oh, yeah. aged cheese. Absolutely. It keeps, if you do it right, it keeps. Well, and then there is, a un, from the cheesemaking perspective, the other unique thing about goat is um, you can freeze goat cheese, right? The, the fresh cheese, the chev, yes. You yeah. can freeze it, yeah. But right. I... I I don't recommend freezing the bloomy rind cheeses. It, it definitely messes with the rind. Um, oh sure. Yeah, right. but the fresh chev absolutely can be frozen, and yeah. it does not affect the quality. Is it like um, sheep milk? People freeze sheep milk before they make cheese. Can you do that with goat? No, milk? no, okay. you can't freeze the milk. Yeah, it it messes with the fat and the proteins, uh-huh. and it just doesn't. When when it's thawed, it just doesn't work well for making cheese. And now, sheep milk, I think pre- it it really depends on how fast it's frozen. Like if it's frozen fast, it doesn't change the the characteristics of the milk. But from uh-huh. what I've heard, uh, e- even with sheep milk, if if it's not frozen properly, it's hard to turn it into cheese once it's thawed. Yeah, that's that. I, that always surprised me that people were freezing their sheep milk. And I don't know if it's just because there's so much fat in sheep milk. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So it's the content as well as the quality of the fat. Uh-huh. Um, but also sheep milk is even more seasonal than, than goat milk. Sheep lactate for six months. It's, um, right. Uh, it's... Uh, it's really hard to have a business when your animal's lactating for only six months. Right. And how how many months do your goats lactate? For about nine, nine okay. to nine and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Similar to so, similar to cow. Mm-hmm. Yep. So 
you're um so you're in the middle of planting this pasture now so the goats that you have right now are back at the home farm right still yeah i'm assuming right Right. yeah Yeah, they are um we may uh manage to get them in there late and if we don't think it'll damage the trees um we'll get them in late in the fall with Mm -hmm. uh some limited pasture but uh most of the trees are uh, still at a delicate state, so um, goats are notorious for being able to wipe out vegetation if they don't have much else to eat. So, right, you always want to uh, you want to keep them uh, supplied with uh, a lot of diverse um, edible product mm-hmm. uh, plants. So, our are, your are, their silver pasture is going to have the, all this diversity of trees, and then I'm assuming there's some understory to this too? Yes, we uh, planted the whole uh, area with uh, alf- with a forage alfalfa, which is what we found they like to eat the most, of the legumes, and then uh, some grasses. And then we're not too serious about weeds because or controlling them because most of the time the goats will uh, take care of that pretty well right. on their own, and they like Again, they love the weed diversity out there too. So um, it'll be a fairly diverse understory. We'd like to keep legumes for the protein in there, but um, otherwise, let it go. Yeah. (laughs) See what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you know anyone else in the country that's doing this? There are certainly a number of people doing silvopasture. Um, in many cases, that definition seems to be related to overstory trees, uh, more of a forest with an understory that's raised. Right. And we've been looking hard for somebody who's intentionally planting uh, food-related woodies for goats, mm-hmm. and we haven't been able to locate it. Mm-hmm. Again, deer, uh, there is a little bit on that, but it's not set up as paddocks or anything else like that. So, um, no, we'd love to hear from somebody who's, uh, figured it out. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Learn. Right. Well, (laughs) you may be the people who are figuring it out. I don't know. I, in all my travels, I have not run into anybody who is doing anything remotely like this with goats. So yeah, it's fascinating. And it it could be, you know, what a transformational thing for the landscape where you are. Yes, it really is. It really is. Well, that's and, what we and think. And just, just coincidentally, the area we're developing was right on the uh, border between uh, the timber soils and the prairie soils. Uh-huh. So in a sense, we have both types um, on the property and can look at how um, the woody plants and the herbaceous plants uh, develop on those two and are complementary. So, um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be an education for everybody. Wow. It, yeah. In some ways, we're kind of restoring it to how the landscape was um, when, when Native Americans lived in this area. The, this was because it was a combination of, of trees and, and wet prairie, it, um, it was a really important location for native native people and there's a lot of evidence of settlements in in this area hmm. that's yeah, interesting uh, too people have found quite a few art, artifacts on on the land we're at because 
just uh, there's a little bit of elevational change, and that's all it takes to uh, create a wetland at the bottom and a, a higher land that doesn't flood, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 10 feet up in the air. So it's uh, right. um, interesting landscape in that regard. So does that creek that's on your property go through this too? So is there like a little watershed area in there too? Or Yeah, the creek actually goes around the edge of the property and through part of the property. So um, it's uh, it's called a drainage ditch, but it used to be a creek. <laughs> before it's they called a drainage ditch now, yeah. Yeah, they dredge it out. They pile the spoils on the side to make a little levee. Um, but we're looking at how we can manage uh, the goats on the levee and uh, all through the riparian zone with, uh, to make the, that zone more diverse and productive right. to both for wildlife and for the goats. Right, right. Is there drain tile? Is that that you had to pull up drain tile? Uh, there is some drain tile. I don't think it's working very well. <laughs> so oh. it's pretty old. And uh, drain tile don't live forever. It hasn't been tiled recently with plastic or anything. It's old clay tile, as far as I can tell. And uh, that tends to break up and revert the land back to uh, wet prairie. Right. If you don't redo it. So, um, so you may not need to pull it up. Yeah. uh, Yeah, about all you need to do is uh, deep till once. (laughs) And you... uh, Right. It just stops it up and and returns it back to the way it was. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we thought about that. We'll we'll just we're getting the feel for the land just to see what it's like. So sure. So now you're soil scientists and you're going to be tracking what happens to the soil over time. Um, and you mentioned about carbon storage. Um, do you have? Because you know, I think there are a lot of people who are thinking about you know how how agriculture could be become part of the solution to climate change and um, carbon storage is one of the ways. So um, maybe you can talk to us a bit more about that. Sure. I'd be happy to. Well, um, so the silvopasture system was identified by Paul Hawkins in the book he edited called uh, Drawdown as uh, number nine out of 10 out of a hundred techniques for uh, fighting uh, climate change. And uh, the feeling is that because you've got diverse root structures and diverse uh, uh, growth patterns and uh, plant characteristics and animals intentionally on the system, that you can create a system that will actually put um, the substantial amounts of carbon back in the soil and leave it there, not release it again from tillage or other practices burning and um, that it's uh, what measurements have been made suggest it's one of the very top techniques for doing that. And so uh, I've looked on my career at a lot of root structures and root patterns and root turnover and dynamics. And um, some of the carbon that stays in the soil would be from the manure and from the uh, leaf fall and, above ground wood, but also a lot of it would be stored deeper in the soil from the um, plants, the prairie plants, as well as the tree roots decomposing. And that's a lot more stable and a lot less likely to get uh, recirculated, released 
some decomposition back up into the air. So we'd love to see what we can do to to uh, quantify that, and that's uh, that's a long time study. So I'm hoping to find some young people who uh, <laughs> would be able to <laughs> join us in this. Um, but I think uh, there's a good possibility. It makes total sense for those of us who've dealt with plants and soils that way and animals. So right. uh, we need to find elegant ways to quantify it, but um, it should should make a significant difference compared to what we what we do now. Right. So that is a whole topic, right? Of of the yeah. just the quantifying and how you sample and all that. Um, but it, but your farm will be um, you're setting it up to be an amazing research site. Well, that's what we think, and we we think there are lots of opportunities um, based on what we're going to be learning to uh, propagate that model too. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you'd use appropriate species for the soil and the climate and, that you'd be going into and, and for your production uh, objectives, milk or meat. Um, but uh, that we're pretty sure you can do all that. So, right. Um, right. And, and then you, on top of it all, you, you have this agritourism business so people could actually come and see what you're doing. Well, that's one thing we've always been very adamant about is that we wanted total transparency in what we do and why we do it, how we do it, uh, and why we do it. Mm-hmm. So we've uh, always had lots of people coming out to the farm through the year. Uh, this spring has been a complete reversal, of course. Right, of course. But, um, but once uh, we get beyond this, then... Uh, we still feel that farms should be open on a regular basis and have the owner or manager explain to the public what, what they're doing and why and justify um, why you should, not only because the food tastes good, but because it's uh, healthy for you and it's uh, good for the uh, ecosystem. So uh, we're both teachers. So we love uh, having people out and explaining those kinds of things. And we're proud of what we do. So we don't right. think we have to hide it uh, right. in any way. No, you're kind of, kind of the gold standard for a lot of the um, practices and values that a lot of people are looking for in their food. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we think um, people become aware of that, that there is this and that uh Again, the food has to taste good, or people aren't going to be buying it. So right, we know that can right. Um, so we know that two can go together, and uh, we'd like to see a lot more people doing it that way. Yeah. So, do people come from just like sh- to? I'm thinking about gelato. So, how far do people drive <laughs> to have gelato? We get some Chicago folks to come down. We in that uh, crazy. We did self- Sell some at Green City, didn't we, Leslie? I think. Yeah, um, yeah. When we used to do Green City Market in Chicago a few years yeah. ago, yeah, we, we would bring bring it up. But um, it's become just a hyper local thing. But I mean, yesterday we were open and we it was a thunderstormy kind of day, and people were still out here eating cups of gelato and just we also- uh, enjoying. Yeah, and we buy products from other farmers, so we have a nectarine sorbetto that oh. uh, everybody With should whey. try, too. With whey, yeah. It's delicious. 
It's so good. It's it's just it, the whole um, agritourism thing is so interesting for to me because I I think it is such a powerful way to um, educate people honestly about where you know where food comes from and for farms like yours that are doing such uh, visionary kinds of things. It's such a a gift that you're um, open to the public. Well, yeah, we, it, uh, we hope Brett, we hope Brett. to be able to get back to that in a more in a more deliberate way, and and right, right. right now it's just uh, everything's topsy turvy right now. Yeah. Well, it's and coming. you know, I I think well, actually, around Madison, what I've been hearing um, and seeing is like anybody who's doing pick your own or anything, they've just been oh, like so busy because it's oh. one of the few things people feel comfortable doing, right? So, yeah, yep. Um, so it's been crazy. Well, we and we had certainly done that earlier in the in the early days in our two acre fruit orchard, but the fruit orchard's kind of uh, gone to the back of the priorities right now. So I think we'll get a little bit of fruit off of it but uh it was so gratifying to have people taste really good fruit out of doors and hear about how it's produced Mm -hmm. and then get to look in on the goats at the same time so yeah i bet uh, we hope we could go back to that yeah well it's it some way shape or form at some time i think we'll go back because people yeah I actually think because of COVID, people have connected even more with farmers. Like this idea they've, that um, I, I actually want a personal connection with where my food is coming from is, is hopefully going to be a lasting thing coming out of COVID. Because it's certainly the, more relationships like that have been established during COVID. Yeah, yeah and we, I think part we're of definitely our- seeing the folks who are who are making the effort to come to our farmer's market, which has very strict social distancing rules in place, that they are the dedicated shoppers. Those are the people that we've always wanted to have and not the folks who just come to gawk and not buy Mm -hmm. anything. So ironically, and I I know it's not the same for our our fellow vegetable farmers. Um, They're they're seeing reductions in their sales, but for us, we've actually seen an increase in, in sales because we're getting the right kind of people at the farmer's market. Nice. They want, they want that connection. Yeah. Yeah. And they're looking for that food too. Yeah. Well, it, it, hopefully that will, will, you know, persist and, and, it, you know, if they come for your food and along they learn a way they learn about, uh, you know, ways that farming can be involved in carbon sequestration. I mean, how great is that? Yeah, this stealth education. Right, stealth yeah. education, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and the, yeah. Bait, and the bait the bait is the food. So um, that that's what uh, uh, brings them out with the open attitude. Yeah, exactly. And then baby goats are so cute. I mean, who could resist? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. No, you have to have a heart uh, of stone. Right. Yeah. Yeah, now we have uh, a lot of folks in the spring who want to help us raise our baby goats for Aww. a couple months. So, do they? Do you have volunteers come out in the spring? We, yeah, the, the, this year that that fell apart. But normally, we have a little army of volunteers in the spring that help feed babies. Oh, usually thirty to forty volunteers. 
uh, from wow. the university and our customer list and others. And a lot of them have come for eight or 10 years, probably, wow. to uh, help out. Wow. So uh, is this because some mamas are better than others at, at feeding? Or is it because you're we, weaning? We, do, we, we don't, uh, they don't nurse from their mothers. So they're, I see. they're separated okay. at birth. Yeah, they're, yeah, everybody's bottle fed. Okay. No wonder you need help. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, How did you do that too. this year? <laughs> uh, well, we had a really great staff, and we did have, I would say, a half a dozen uh, longtime volunteers who were healthy and were willing to commit to taking on more shifts. And I see, our yeah. Staff, our, yeah, our staff just kind of, they just rolled up their sleeves and went to work, and we, we birthed a record number of 220 kids born oh this year. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a little bit of a burnout by the end of that. But Oh, uh, boy, I bet. So you guys, you're expanding your um, pastures and implementing this whole system, and it sounds like you're also going to be expanding your creamery. That that's the hope. Yeah, we're we're hoping. Um, of course, all all of these plans were initiated pre-pandemic. Um, of course. And we're hoping that um, that there is growth opportunity for our our dairy products going into the the future. And um, what we're trying to do is is create a model that not only is incredible for the environment, but is also going to be recognized in the marketplace. And, and that, that has to be, those two things have to be uh, neck and neck or, or complementary because if they're not, then um, it doesn't matter what we do. If, if we can't, if we can't convince folks that, that our cheese is uh, worth paying a little more for because, we're doing these things, um, then the premise of the model is, is not robust. Right. 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 So, you know, and part of, um, cheese making, just like a lot of food processing is, is we get a little bit bigger, you get a little bit more efficient and that helps also. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. 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 We, we, uh, building, building a dairy creamery from scratch in the middle of, Illinois um, uh, gave you a lot of opportunities to make mistakes, I and bet, so yeah. um, we we've uh, pasted together a lot of the mistakes, redone some mistakes, and we're thinking that if we can do it from scratch again, we could avoid those mistakes at least and uh, get good advice to um, build a more efficient system. And we would hope that down the line we can lower the cost of production significantly at the same time we maintain our production methods and our quality Mm -hmm. uh, product yeah i mean it it it's not it it's not inconceivable that that could happen right just because you as you said the first time you did it you made a bunch of mistakes they like everybody does that (laughs) and just scale right and scale yeah yeah being yeah that those two we're hoping will uh let us get the price uh, more accessible for a lot of people. Cool. 
So do you guys do this and still work full time? <laughs> no. Uh, I was no. going to say, because no. I'm like, oh, my God, they're milking goats and making cheese and planting trees and, and right? Yeah, we do and all that. And having people and, for uh, dinners. <laughs> yeah, and then do the dinners. Yeah, that, uh, to be honest, uh, not doing the dinners this year um, is kind of a relief because we uh, don't, not that we get weekends, but it's a little more quiet on the weekends yeah. now. So that's, that's good. But uh, we'd sure like to build them up again. We've had a lot of people um, tell us how much they miss them. So oh, we'll I'm sure. look at doing some version in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. So, so are you still at the university, though? I'm emeritus professor. Emeritus, uh, okay. So I uh, just I talk to people occasionally, but that's about it right now. Nice. I, uh, so you're mostly might, a farmer. I became a farmer. Yeah, it's I've always wanted to do. Nice. <laughs> so it's a little diversion through academics and a couple other things, but yeah. But I am hoping that this uh, opportunity for research and development. Uh, of these systems will let me get back into it a little bit at this point. Yeah, it's so, kind of a kind of marrying two strands of your life, right? Well, definitely. It's uh, that's one of the uh, great things about farming is that uh, everywhere you go, you see a question you wish you had a better answer for. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you're a researcher, you that's what you're doing all the time is looking for those answers. But when you're a farmer, you don't always have a lot of time to to delve into it like you wish you could. Right. So maybe it's possible to uh, get some other folks involved and be able to um, get some of those answers. Right, right. And Leslie, are you on the farm full-time or are you still Oh, yeah, I've working? been I've been on the farm full-time since 2009. So, okay. I, yeah, I, I quit. I quit the university back then because it was becoming really clear that uh, there was no way I kept reducing my my percent <laughs> appointment, and I was down to like twenty five percent. And it's right, pretty pretty clear that uh, there just something had to give. So right, yeah, right, I've yeah. Been, no, with young businesses, every entrepreneur kind of you get you got to the time comes when you have to quit the day <laughs> job, right? So, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, boy, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything we missed that people <laughs> get to know about you and your farm? I definitely need to add that we want to appreciate uh, a lot of people who helped us. A uh, few of them, certainly our staff, has been fantastic. But um, Iroquois Valley Farms has been terrific in helping us uh, get the resources we needed uh, for advice and materials, Savannah Institute, and uh, Midwestern Agroforestry Center in Missouri has been terrific. Uh, Mary Jo Schiller and the use of land next to us to uh, do some of our early experiments with have all uh, contributed essentially to our ability to go into silvopasture systems. I mean, go ahead, Leslie. I, I, I think I'd just like people to know that um, we... We are what we do is is not typical of most farmstead um, goat creameries and um, people 
should understand that we're we're doing everything the hard way in terms of from the goat up, like really thinking about the goat the goat first because thinking about the goat first as opposed to just kind of taking the milk as it comes um, is an interesting way to think about your cheese. I mean, everybody kind of nods to this idea that, well, it all comes down to the quality of your milk, but they're not really thinking hard about the animal and what the animal needs to produce that quality milk. And um, so by thinking about it literally from the soil up to through the, through the goat, the goat is the vehicle. Um, it, uh, it's a lot more complicated than other folks who've just decided, well, we're just going to stick them in a barn and feed them, feed them hay and, and some kind of a ration and simplify the husbandry part of the operation so that we can have constant milk and consistent quality product. And um, that, that comes at a certain cost that no matter how efficient we get, it's still going to be, more costly than um, than what most people purchase when they go to the grocery store and buy goat cheese. Right. Uh, and and getting getting that message out um, in a way that doesn't sound uh, hostile or accusatory or it, it you know people people have choices, but it it would be really great to figure out a way to convey what we do. Um, so that people have a, a richer understanding of what this is compared to what the vast majority of of uh, commercial goat cheese operations represent. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I think another part of that too is, um, you know, the the. I think there's this part of the world is wants to tell the story that animal agriculture is always bad for the environment right. and for the animals, right? Right. Yeah. No, right. that's that's very true. And we meet a fair number of those people. I bet you do. And <laughs> yeah, and and I wonder, um, you know, and maybe you can talk a little bit about like what is the role of animals in the ecosystem on your farm? Because I think people don't realize that uh, if you use a husbandry system like you do, animals are actually serving a valuable purpose on the farm that you can't yeah, replicate without them. They're recycling nutrients in mm-hmm. place. So, um, and e- even with that, you know, we, we, we still have a long way to go to minimizing having to spread their um, manure on fields to recycle nutrients from the barns. Um, it, ideally, you know, we'd, we'd like to have that be less of where the nutrients are coming from and them doing the spreading by just being out, out in their silvopasture mo- most of the time. Uh, so they're performing that function, but they're also eating uh, a lot of stuff that no other animals will eat. And so they're, they're just, natural weed controllers um and by by having a system that is perennial agriculture uh that's not being tilled every year you're just um you're going to well you're protecting your soils from erosion but you're also um uh reducing the uh 
carbon emissions by just just by not plowing. Uh, so by having animals on the landscape and creating um, a forage system for them to eat in place, it it has a lot of those benefits. Right, right, and and that is so different than a system where you're planting corn on beans and feeding it to cows that never leave a barn, right? Like right. that. Yeah. It's it's like not even it's almost like it's not even the same thing at all, right? It's so different. And that's what yeah. is that's so important to convey to people, I think. Well, before we moved here, I worked with some grazers who up in Wisconsin who had converted from conventional and uh, one of the first things they say is, I enjoy them going and collecting their own feed, and I enjoy them spreading their own manure. <laughs> because if you keep them in a barn, you do both of those, uh, 100%. So uh, the, the other thing I wanted to mention uh, is I think there's opportunity for people to get into what we do. Um, and if we can work together on on this, I think there's some business uh, propositions that could work out well. Uh, we certainly had people who wanted to do what we do, but once they came and looked at what we do, <laughs> they said, this is way too complicated. Right. And I, I know how to work hard, but I don't know that I could do all the things you do. So what we'd like to do is work with people who um, do have a lot of the attributes, some of the experience, uh, but really want to uh, produce food the way we think it should be produced. And uh, if we work together, we think we could propagate more farms out there that would be uh, environmentally and economically and socially sustainable. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's a, that's, um, we need more farms like yours and we need people like you who are willing to be the pioneers, right? Who are, are going to try to, you know, what did you call it on the, in entrepreneurship, we call it the people who are on the bleeding edge, right? You know, <laughs> there's cutting yeah, edge a, and the that's, bleeding that's edge. A good term. But that's without term. people like you who are taking the risk and doing something that I'm sure your neighbors think you're absolutely crazy, <laughs> right? Um, the oh, acres, yeah. everybody thinks you're nuts. Um, but, but we won't move forward and, and without people like you doing what you're doing. Well, thank you. And I think without people like you supporting us, uh, it makes it triply hard. So yeah. thank you for all you guys are doing. Oh, at the well, it's my pleasure. So I think um, it's been a wonderful visit. And I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing. And um, we've got to stay in touch because we're going to need to keep people up to date on how your how your farm is going, because it is such a path-breaking path you're headed on? Well, we're trying to take uh, a lot of video and uh, Great. photos and other things to document the tree growth and the ev evolution of the farm ecosystem. So um, we'll hope to continue that and be able to put the story together. That's awesome. That's awesome. And um, yeah, so we will be in touch. Thanks so much for visiting with us today. Well, again, thank, thank, thank you, you so Tara. much. Guys. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.